This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 29 of the Equestrian Legends Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network. Gloria Austin. I am Glenn the Geek, founder of the Horse Radio Network, and our guest this week is carriage driver and collector Gloria Austin. In the world of carriage driving and carriage collecting and in the world of horses, Gloria Austin is considered one of its grand dames. She rose to that distinction by hard work, dedication, and the vision that has helped better the world's understanding of the equestrian world. She is one of very few women to have driven the number of coaches, foreign hands, and vehicles she has in countries all over the world. She is also one of the most knowledgeable scholars on the history of horses and horse-drawn vehicles in the world. She has competed at many levels in carriage driving. She is best known today as one of the world's premier four-in-hand drivers. To complement this in-ring involvement, Gloria serves on the board of directors of the Carriage Museum of America, founding member of the Four-in-Hand Club, and active memberships in the World Coaching Club, European Private Driving Club, and the British Driving Society. Her love of travel and carriage competition has allowed her to drive in 13 countries on three continents with 17 different horse breeds. Gloria's accomplishments have been acknowledged through an honorary directorship of the Carriage Association of America, recognized for her various accomplishments by the United States House of Representatives and documented in its congressional record. Appointed as an honorary Kentucky colonel by the state's governor and commended by numerous national and international organizations. In addition to her continuing love affair with the horse world, Gloria and her partner, retired surgeon Dr. Jean Sarah, have developed into accomplished ballroom dancers. They have competed and performed for audiences throughout the United States. They recently captured a national ballroom dancing championship as an amateur couple. Gloria continues today as a lecturer in Florida. She can also be found keynoting at various equine conferences and workshops. Dr. Wendy Ying and I from the Driving Radio Show had the opportunity to interview her in person in her library at her farm in Central Florida. Meet Gloria Austin. Well, hi, Gloria. Thank you so much for appearing on the Equestrian Legends Show. We appreciate that. Well, thank, thank you. I'm usually on the telephone with you, and I know. today we're in person, so well, I appreciate that. Well, we're in your beautiful library here, and, uh, I, you know, it, it, it was a, it's a pleasure to finally meet you in person, first of all. Thank Wendy, you. I know, has met you many, many times. Oh, yes. We wanted to, with the Question Legend Show, we really like this to be a historical record of your life. So what I'd like to do is start at the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in a town in upstate New York called Hornell, New York, in a hospital, and I think I was one of the first of my family to be born in a hospital, Uh, but uh, in upstate New York, and that's where I grew up, in a little town called Troopsburg, New York, which is right on the Pennsylvania border. So that's where I spent my childhood, was in Troopsburg. And tell us a little bit about your family, your mom and dad, and any siblings? Uh, Yes, I have had three siblings. My eldest brother is deceased, but uh, uh, my sister that's nine and a half years older than I, and my younger brother that was actually my companion in childhood, uh, still lives in Wellsville, New York, in upstate New York. So. 
Now, were you on a farm or in town? Or Yes, I grew up on a dairy farm. And oh, really? I, yes. I bet you a lot of people <laughs> so didn't know, know that. The cows. <laughs> so I, I, I know the cows and I know how to milk the cows. Is right. That's right. And back then, it was not automatic milkers. No, it wasn't. In fact, I... It was children. With pride. <laughs> I was pride when I went to uh, Costa Rica just recently. I took a tour and saw some Spanish horses mm-hmm. down there. And I went to a dairy farm. And actually, I could sit down and milk the cow, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> so, but my father was a kettle dealer. And uh, so he, out of necessity, had several dairy farms. And uh, I grew up on a thousand acres. Uh, oh, so wow. I could have a horse and, and ride to my heart's content mm-hmm. when I was a child. And you did have a horse? I did have a horse. I can remember... I first became interested in horses watching Roy Rogers and Gene Autry on television and Dale Evans, you know, and Sky mm-hmm. King and all of those <laughs> great entertainers uh, and uh, begged my father for a horse. And since he was a cattle dealer, he knew occasionally a, a horse would come through a cattle auction mm-hmm. or some such thing as that. And he had grown up with horses. His first job when he graduated from eighth grade was to drive a pair of draft horses on road construction. So he knew that a child my age, I needed a senior experienced horse. So he purchased a horse by the name of Duke, which I think was an American saddlebred. At that time, oh. I didn't know enough about horses to be <laughs> able to it distinguished gated? breed. Uh, no, it no? was not. Really? No, it was a trotting trotting saddlebred. But it had been it was eighteen years old when he purchased it for me. So he knew a young person needed mm-hmm. an elder experienced horse. And he was bay, uh, and tall as I remember, but it might have been just because I was a child and I was short. <laughs> so uh but I remember this horse being bigger than life and uh was so excited. In in fact I, I have to tell uh, people that he gave me two bits of advice and only horse people understand this you will walk your horse away from the barn and you will walk your horse back to the barn (laughs) okay meaning I need to warm his muscles up and get the horse flexible not tear off uh, in a canter and also to discipline the horse well enough to uh, come back to the barn at a quiet walk and then to cool the horse down before he was put away not many kids learn that quick enough uh, when they're just thrown on a horse and go out to have fun, especially. Now, for for reference of time frame here, this would have been, I happen to know your age, so this would have been oh. post-World War II. This would have been in the 40s? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in 50s, uh, early 50s, uh, when I probably had my first horse, yeah. Yeah. And then... Uh, I actually, when I went away to college, I thought I could keep my horse at home and come back and ride, but uh, your life changes, and I actually had to sell my horse because I wasn't using it enough, Mm -hmm. and I took the proceeds and bought books for college. (laughs) So uh, moral to the story is you need to get your education (laughs) along with, uh, and then later on, I, of course, when I could afford it, I bought myself a horse again, so... Do you uh, drive by dairy farms and miss it? 
No. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> How did I know that was yeah, the answer? Yeah, he knew that <laughs> was the answer. That's a tough it, life. That was the answer. But by the way, I have done some team penning with a horse. And oh, really? Feedlot sorting. And my early childhood knowledge of cows has really helped me when it came to doing some of those Western oh, disciplines yeah. like cutting and... And uh, like how to move them with your body, like yes, be? that's, that's yes, great. yes, uh-huh. yep, that's so I can read the cow <laughs> as well as the horse. So, yeah, so did any of your uh, siblings get involved with horses at all, or were you the lone horse girl? I was the lone horse girl. <laughs> In fact, my younger brother, uh, 14 months younger than I, always wanted to ride my horse, uh, but he he didn't have the flair for the horse, let's say, because the horse would take him under a tree and try to scrape him off. And my brother could never stop the horse before it went into the barn. Mm-hmm. So my he was always complaining. What? And so I was glad he complained because that means I didn't have to share my horse with him. <laughs> so, so now we progress. You went to college for what? Well, I actually had an aptitude in mathematics and science. I hate to tell the world this, but it was <laughs> physics and calculus and all of that sort of thing. Uh, wait a minute. You're the only horse girl I know that has physics and calculus and She's all that like, sort of thing. Punishment. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, let me tell you, my personality was not that of a scientist. So my brother, who couldn't ride the horse, actually went into the sciences as an engineer <laughs> And I ended up studying sociology and psychology mm-hmm. uh, and also public administration. So my master's is actually in public administration because I had born to me a handicapped child and I was involved in government planning for the developmentally disabled and uh, coordinated, in fact, uh, state, local, and federal planning in that area for Monroe County up near Rochester, New York. So I that was my degree, but I actually ended up working in the corporate world probably as much or more than I did the public sector. Let's talk a little bit about that. So you get out of college, where did you head from there? Well, I headed to raise a family. (laughs) And so raising uh, two children first, uh, and then uh, eventually, as I said, after I had volunteered in the public with the public sector, uh, I became employed there. And uh, then when I became divorced from my first husband, uh, I actually set up the offices of a company called Paychex in the New York metropolitan area. And that was always great fun. I think I told you earlier, I loved meeting all the variety of business owners that you would meet in a metropolitan area like that of 250,000 businesses that have under 15 or under employees. And that's what that company specialized in, was doing... When did they start, Paycheck? In the 70s. See, I didn't realize they were that early. Yes, yeah. yeah. And uh, started in Rochester, New York, and it was franchised throughout the United States. In fact, I owned the company in New York City that was part of the original franchise system. Uh, And then all of the individual owners, they merged their stock back into one corporation. And then uh, that corporation is now national uh, in origin and and very successful. And it's been very successful for a lot of people, particularly the original 18 people. And I was the only woman among the original 18. And probably, Wendy, you know about being the only woman in some (laughs) of these circumstances. But in the days when I was in New York City, I would be the only woman on an airplane traveling for business. Mm -hmm. Um, I would be the a novelty to come into these small businesses, their offices. And if you displayed any sort of knowledge outside of looking pretty, uh, 
everybody was amazed. So they bought the payroll service. So, so what, I, what can I tell you? And uh, and a lot of them, I, I, you know, I don't want to take that. I don't want to uh, brush over that. I taught sales for a lot of years and have been in sales, financial sales for a lot of years. And you were at a time in in that period of time, the seventies, okay, sixties and seventies, yeah. when people did when those small businesses didn't realize they needed a payroll service. So you were going right. in selling yeah. them something they didn't even realize they needed. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And it was interesting because I actually opened those offices in New York in the early, late late 70s and early 80s. And the number one reason for using an outside payroll service or outsourcing your business was for confidentiality. Because we were dealing with small people, small oh, companies, small business, and yeah. everybody knows everybody's life right. in a small, uh, small company. And so uh, that was the reason. And uh, so you... Uh, but we had, it's interesting because everybody thinks it was tough because I went to the major metropolitan area in the United States. But actually, my life was easy because the major competitor was there, which was ADP. And if you know anything yeah, about our government right. statistics, they give payroll statistics to the federal government. And what it, it was before automated payroll systems or computerized systems were really very popular, but ADP had been in that business first, but only service larger clients. So once we came along, we said, you can have one, two, five, fifteen employees and still have your service done out your payroll done outside your office. And the other unique thing that Paychex did is to offer a complete services. In other words, uh, your tax returns for payroll were done for you. And uh, in all of these reports that your accountant loves to see if they're on a sheet of paper that he can read. (laughs) And believe it or not, our chief competitor was not other payroll businesses because they were dealing with larger clients. Our chief competitor was what they used to call a dome payroll book. Do you know, uh, it was a little book that you used to have these circulars beside you, these little charts beside you, and then you would enter your figures manually into this book, and then you would give it to your accountant periodically (sighs) and make your federal deposits. And and, those figures were never right, by the way. Yes. (laughs) Oh, you know enough (laughs) to know. That's right. So they really appreciated an automated service Mm -hmm. coming along. And this is in the days when computers took up rooms, not your desktop. That's right. (laughs) You know, so... uh, When we were still punching holes in cards. That's right. Oh, yes, exactly. We had key punch... As before Wendy's time. Uh, Yeah, that's right. We had key punch (laughs) operators and all of that sort of thing. So it was interesting to live during uh, that period and I'm absolutely still uh, fascinated with electronics and use my cell phone and I'm at Facebook and just look me up on Facebook and uh, all of those yeah, great you, things. I remember yeah. when Bump first came out, Gloria bumped. Yes, that's and right. I like, did bump. People were like, what's that's Bump? Right. And yeah. I said to Gloria at the show and she was like, oh yeah, of course I bump. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cutting yeah. edge. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but I've always, I've always enjoyed that. So in some ways, my life was tied to mathematics then from my early training, but 
But I, I tell you, the one thing, and the reason I went that route with you yes. a little bit here, is to show, because I think it's going to relate a little bit later on to when we get talking to more when you got into horses and started becoming a history nut and all of that, yes. is uh, what I found is the sales experience I had was some of the best life lessons I've ever had and has, has been the thing that really has allowed me to start a radio network and to interview people and to do all of those things all goes back to those sales days. Exactly. And... And I look at myself, and I always said, you know, I liked people, which I do. But I think I'm more of an entertainer than I am a people person. I I love to bring joy to people and for people to have an aha moment. Oh, I didn't Mm -hmm. realize that. So if you can cite some figures. Wendy and I have had a few this morning already. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, we gave them the reins of the forehand this morning to try, and you both did very well. We both had a hot moment. I stayed on the road better than Wendy. Let me just point that out. That's a good idea. I'm a micromanager. That's right. That's right. That's right. So when did horses come back into your life? Well, uh, at age 40, I could finally afford a horse again. Uh, So I sold my horse, I think I told you, for college books when I went away to college. And so at age 40, I could afford a horse. And I bought a saddle horse. It was a a, a bay and white uh, paint horse, it was, because I wanted to get into riding, because that was the most economical way to do things at the time. And I didn't know much at all about carriage driving at that point. And uh, so I bought myself a registered paint horse that was delightful and kind to me and well-trained and uh, offered me some good early experiences at age 40. But my knees hurt me and my back from riding and things. So I knew I had to kind of uh, deviate. And uh, I maybe told you earlier, I went off to the... um, Royal Winter Fair up in Toronto, Canada, mm-hmm. and I saw these very old gentlemen driving four horses <laughs> to a big coach, and it looked like if you went, you could blow them off the top of the carriage, they look so frail. And as I tell most people, we have 50% less body upper body strength than men do, and I thought, well, if those old guys can do it, I can do it. So that's how I got into carriage driving is to have that vision. And we all have to have these images in front of us or visions in front of us uh, in order to head in a certain direction. Now, were you in New York City still at the time? No, I, w- I had actually uh, moved to the, a rural countryside where I could have horses in upstate New York, back to close to Rochester, New York, where I had spent so much of my early years uh, raising a family. So I was near Rochester, New York. I, I in fact, had a, I naively thought I could go back to nature and raise all my own food. And we I all had, think that at some yes. point, yeah. <laughs> and, and we plant the two-acre garden, yes. and we discover weeds. That's right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I discovered that I was producing eggs for $2.10 a dozen when I could buy them in the store for 89 cents a dozen. And I thought, well, this is a little ridiculous. But I had a herd of uh, 70 uh, polled herefords at the time. Oh, really? And uh, a 4-H raised uh, bull. Mm-hmm. And so I was going full force into raising my own beef and chickens and yeah. garden and um, all of that stuff. But it, it, it you realize how much our forefathers struggled to produce livelihood and it's an awful lot of work and so I thought better of that and uh, (laughs) then then moved back to more um, suburban or uh, urban environments so 
Was it after the kids then were gone that you you really got into the driving thing? Uh, yes, yeah. uh huh, yes. Uh, the um, I bought a pony. It was a Welch Arab cross pony mm-hmm. that came with a sleigh, a tr- little training cart that had wire wheels on it. Mm-hmm. Wendy will be able to identify <laughs> with this. And then what at the time I didn't know was a cut-down runabout. Now I know all the names of the carriages mm-hmm. and their styles and all of that sort of thing. But at the time, I, I didn't know that. And so this this pony was my first uh, driving horse. And I still had a saddle horse at that time as well. But uh, that's how I got interested in driving and started with this pony. I thought you should start with small horses. And I think I shared with you, ponies are just way too quick for they me. Are, they're hard. <laughs> oh, my I don't goodness. know why people oh. decide to do I don't know either. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So I uh, thought thought better of that and then moved on to horses. And So uh, did you take any lessons before or did you say, oh, well, my pony comes with this cart, so I just, just hook him up and go? That was about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know better now that right. that wasn't probably the best thing. Well, I shouldn't say that altogether. The gal gave me, I think, three or four lessons included with the sale of the pony. Mm-hmm. So that at least got me to understand how to <laughs> harness the pony and to do some initial driving. Mm-hmm. But uh, looking back, I was so unsophisticated <laughs> and naive. It's it's amazing. And lucky you didn't die. Yes, in, in a maze. <laughs> and I bought the pony because I wanted to do parades, believe it or not. And mm-hmm. I w- refuse to do parades today. <laughs> so, oh, Glenn, you're like that. <laughs> so I've wised up. So, yeah, that's right. So. Wendy and I have attempted it a few times. It's yes. not been successful. No, I know, I know. It, there's <laughs> We've given just, up on we, yes. there, And the problem is not necessarily you or your animal that's in the parade. It's the naivete of the public mm-hmm. because they don't know that you can't walk in underneath the belly of a horse. Uh <laughs> Uh, and or um, and they, shoot off a firecracker. And the parade organizer doesn't realize that uh, the horses really don't like the carnival games. No, that's right. That's, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's uh, right. But horses have certainly contributed a great deal to my life, and uh, it's it's been amazing because they teach life life's lessons too as well. So. So you're, you're, you, you've uh, decided to progress to horses, and right. at, at that point, uh, th- was there somebody that you really started to you know, look toward for help? Yes, yes. I, had a, I, I moved to, uh, back to the Rochester area where I'd raised my family, and uh, I stabled uh, three driving horses and two saddle horses in a stable up there where the gentleman was, he was an elderly gentleman that managed it, Earl Billington, and he had actually driven horses when you really drove to town oh, with a horse wow. and carriage. And so we had that in common, our interest in carriage driving. And he taught me a great deal. And what we did is we shared our outings. In other words, he'd take his horse and carriage to one event, and I would help him. And then the next event, I would take one or two of my horses and go to an event, and he would help me. Mm-hmm. So, And I still advise that uh, to people who are starting off and... Uh, uh, you know, maybe on a budget or don't have the resources to employ somebody, is either find a friend or convince your partner or spouse to join in the activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, because particularly, as Wendy knows, when you start driving a pair, you need assistance and, and an extra hand. 
So they have know. to be on on call like a, um, in case of emergency, even with a single. Yes. I think it's always wise to have mm-hmm. a ground person. I, I agree with you. And, and mm-hmm. now at, at my age, I, I don't go out alone at all <laughs> ever. So, yeah. But uh, you need that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the old days, it was taken for granted because everybody... Everybody knew how to handle horses. Even your young children knew how to handle ponies and horses. That's and, true. And that whole uh, vast array of knowledge has just been lost. And and you can see it in in that um, you know some recent legislation with horses that that people just don't understand them. And we're mm-hmm. not used to being around large animals in particular. That's true. Uh, everybody's got a pet, and they yeah. know how to handle a dog or a cat, but. Wow, what's that big thing doing out there in the pasture? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So do you remember your first carriage that you bought? A real carriage? Oh, real not the, carriage. Not the, not the uh, little spindly cart. Right. Well, I remember my first collectible carriage because, as you know, I have a fairly large carriage collection. I remember my first collectible carriage that I thought I owned several carriages before that, but this was one I thought I'd never drive, and I'm just going to... Put it in the living room. Put it in the living room or put it in the garage or put it in the barn and let people look at it because Mm -hmm. it's so beautiful. And it was a ladies' wicker phaeton with a parasol fringe top. Oh, beautiful. And I remember that carriage and I thought, my goodness, it's gorgeous. It's a ladies' carriage. Well, that's kind of like the fantasy carriage, isn't it? Yes, yes. what it is. For every girl. Yeah, and I still have it in the museum here. It's still on display here. In fact, there's a pair of American Morgan horses uh, model horses hitched to it down in the. I know which one the, you're talking about. You do, yeah. yep. That's a beautiful down one. Down in the in the museum. So that was the first collectible carriage, and I can remember sitting next to a friend of mine who was very much encouraging me to buy it. That's Linda Boyer. Uh, she's helped me with picnics and all sorts of things, and mostly the girly kinds of things she's helped me <laughs> with because I'd rather be driving the horse than preparing the tailgate picnic. But Linda was sitting next to me, and she kept nudging me, bid higher, bid higher, because it was at Martin's auction. <laughs> oh, was it? Oh, yes, of course. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's right, yeah. But since then, not only have I won prizes with that carriage and driven it, but also my friend Earl Billington and his wife, which I was so pleased. He won second place at Walnut Hill driving that carriage with wow. his wife when he was alive, and that was some of the greatest pride that he took in his horse experiences was to use that carriage in a pair of my horses, Mm -hmm. uh, but he drove it and uh, he had his beautiful wife sitting next to him and one of our liveried grooms in the back. And so I was glad that Earl had a chance to experience that. So, yeah, that was great. Yeah. So did, when did you start competing? Did you in pleasure shows and things? Did you did you ever compete? Yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) I, I competed here, Canada, Europe, uh, and, and most of my competition experiences has been in traditional driving or what I call classical driving because I've always appreciated the history and, and the ambiance of uh, horses and carriages. So probably Walnut Hill competition, driving competition That's in, was New York. The, in New York yep. State, uh, in Pittsburgh, New York, was one of the earliest places where I competed, although I have to say I did the first three Live Oak combined driving events. You did? But only with a single horse, mm-hmm. and that's modern driving. So, uh, And I had to decide in this competition world what I was going to do, mm-hmm. because 
maybe Wendy can do classical driving and modern driving all at the same time, but I felt I needed to choose. Mm -hmm. And I chose on the side of classical or traditional driving because I wanted to get into coaching. I told you I'd seen those big coaches and how Mm -hmm. shiny and nice they were in four horses, and I thought that was spectacular. So I did do three combined driving events, all was single. I prepared a pair, but I had an injury uh, (laughs) the weekend before... the Live Oak event. So I had to take one horse single again for mm-hmm. the third third time. And we did very well. But uh, anyway, so yes, and I've done traditional drives in Europe, these attelage de traditions, and they started in France. And I've done several of them in France and some in Belgium, Germany. Um, and uh, more recently, I guess, I've been uh, very interested in these club events, which are to belong to the World Coaching Club, the mm-hmm. Ladies Coaching Club, the Four in Hand Club. Uh, I think I'm going to be inducted into the Philadelphia Four in Hand <laughs> Club if I if my friends are good to me, my male <laughs> friends are good to me because they seem to dominate these clubs. Yeah. So, but anyway, so uh, what what but, uh, what do you do at the club meetings? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we mostly party. No, 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 no I should. And for say those it. of you that aren't drivers that are listening, that is that's that's pretty much true. Is that yeah? That's right. Well, it's we, part of driving. It's required. It is. It, it very much is required, and uh, it's it's the socializing with other people who have a passion for driving four horses mm-hmm. generally. Well, and and that's one of the reasons that a lot of us get into driving too, and we have a lot of non-driving listeners listening. Right. Is one of the reasons that we get into driving when you go out to ride, you can't bring all your friends with you necessarily unless they ride. But Mm -hmm. driving, you you know, you took us out today that we could have fit five people really on there if we wanted to. And they could have been non-drivers, just anybody. That's exactly right. And that's the fun part about it is the social activities that go on, not only on the carriage, uh, but it, it also helps people to get a different perspective on life when you sit on a carriage that's going uh, eight miles an hour instead of going down the road at 50, 50 mm-hmm. miles an hour. So, yeah. So, but, but it is the socializing is a good share of it. And then I have the utmost respect for anybody that can, you know, first of all, have the ability to purchase a coach and four horses or a fine carriage and four horses. But then to put it all together and then to be able to drive it themselves. (laughs) And that was the ultimate years ago. Owners wanted to replicate what the coachmen had done that were traveling from one city to another city. Mm -hmm. And uh, so to be able to do that, I think everybody needs the blue ribbon. That's why I found (laughs) it difficult to compete. I thought, well, if you got here with four horses and a carriage, you deserve right. the blue ribbon <laughs> right yeah, by itself, you know, so, yeah, mm-hmm. and can drive it. So, yes, and I was uh, one year, I think, North American foreign hand and coaching champion in the same year mm-hmm. when they had both competitions in Canada and the United States. Uh, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, in, in fact, what convinced me to go to four horses, driving four horses, was I won – uh, the pair championship twice in a row at Walnut Hill. And I said, oh, now what do I do? You know, I said, I guess, well, the next step is is the four in hand. So it, it, it evolved over over time uh, to drive four horses and, uh, and then to be able to get through the posts and around the corners and to drive in downtown Amsterdam, for instance. I've done that several times. And I've driven, where was the where was the place that is there a place that you go, okay, that was the, the neatest that was the neatest place I've ever driven. In Amsterdam? Right, anywhere. 
Oh, oh, if I were to answer yeah, that yep. question, down the long walk in Great Britain. Which is? Oh, From Windsor Castle to the uh, George the Fourth statue or whatever he's mm-hmm. positioned on horseback. It's a three-mile drive. But because historically, I guess we're tied to the mm-hmm. British heritage, or at least my family and my culture were tied to the British heritage, and to be there where kings and queens have trod for years mm-hmm. was it would bring tears to your eyes except i had to pay attention to the four horses that were ahead of me and make sure that they were going mm-hmm. straight and going down the it's road it's an irony so. that your coachman uh, who you have is your coachman now well that's not yeah. an irony <laughs> uh, i when i got into foreign hand driving i wanted to learn the british hand because I had studied... That's a, a type of drive. That's drive, a type of driving. Right. And, uh, the way you the hold way the you reins. manipulate the yeah. reins and hold the reins. I had studied with uh, Dr. Leslie Coselli, uh, who was Hungarian. Mm-hmm. And so I had learned the Hungarian hand, which is different than the English hand. And uh, But when I came to drive four, I knew the revered way to drive was to drive as the British coachman had driven. And in fact, some people call that Achenbach, but it was only that the German Achenbach went to Great Britain and studied with the British coachman that mm-hmm. he developed it and then went back to Germany and he wrote it in a book and he said, this is the way you'll all drive. <laughs> and if you know the Germans, they, they are very correct in the way they do things. And so you promulgate it and then you do it. Mm-hmm. But uh, so... I uh, approached George Bowman, who was national champion, and he suggested that I contact David Saunders, who had worked for Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth for a number of years. And uh, he said, you know, I think he's available and he's not working right now. You might want to call him because he, you'll need him if you're going to be driving a foreign hand and learning the British hand. And so that's what I did, and that's how I started out. David worked for me a half day for two years, uh, the first year I drove four horses uh, in that style. In the second year I drove the coach in that style. And and then David went on and I went on and had different people work for me. And uh, Melissa Warner was also very helpful to mm-hmm. me. She was a, a young, beautiful woman that uh, worked for me for 11 years. And she served as my coach woman. Uh, coachmen and coach women are different than teachers and trainers. Uh, they have to know more than just training the horses. They have to know how to present them, the proper harness, the bits you use, the appointments you use on the carriage. Uh, and they have to know how to deal with the people. Absolutely. <laughs> and they have to dress up and look yep. good at parties. Yep. That's the important thing. <laughs> sort of like the huntsman at the ball. That's yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So when did they, your... your uh, your real interest in the history of, of carriages and, and vehicles. You started a carriage collection with one, yes. you know, um, didn't probably have any dream that it was going to end up what it is today, which is yes, 100, 100 plus. Yeah, 165 carriages, I think. You have to be one of the largest collectors in the world of carriages. Well, not actually. There's no, a really? German gentleman by the name of Scheidel that has a huge collection, and I'm going to go to can't Italy. imagine one bigger, you know? It's <laughs> I like, know, I know. You in put him the, in a football stadium? Or where is right. he? <laughs> well, it's in a rope factory. His collection's in a rope factory. I built all these buildings down here mm-hmm. that where you're going to go to see uh, shortly. But uh, I- anyway, so... 
but I got interested in the history when I read a book. We're sitting in the library, and I actually got that book out to show you just a few minutes ago. And it's it's by Harold Barclay, and it's called The Role of the Horse in Man's uh, Culture. And I read that back in the 80s when it first came out. I uh, believe it was in the 80s. Maybe it was a little later than that, I guess. But anyway... Uh, I just that was an eye-opening revelation to me that this horse had played such a paramount role in warfare, transportation, mm-hmm. agriculture, industry. Um, the building of roads and bridges were all set up for the horse and the carriage, right. and and just the all of the our developing civilizations have that have really prospered and come into the modern world, have all done it through the use of the horse. Mm -hmm. And then, as I say, when it's linked with the wheel, uh, there's no stopping. Uh, Man's thoughts and ideas are transferred from one country to another, one area to another. So as I tell everybody, we've had 6,000 years of history with the horse, a domesticated horse, um, and only 100 years plus a little bit with the automobile. And if people get that in perspective, they'll realize how much of the world and civilization is developed out around the horse and the carriage. I love when you um, uh, talk about little pearls of wisdom like that, because I think um, before I got into driving, I was a horse person, but I never thought about how horses affected our history like that. Yes. I remember you told this story once about... um, the, why the the width of the roads with the chariot, right? Yes, and how that connected yeah. everything. And right. you know, I just I never put two and two together like yeah. that. Our uh, rockets that go into outer space, our mm-hmm. trains, our the our train tracks are set up the width of two chariot horses. Mm-hmm. So everything was set up with driving two horses abreast. So our roadways are the Romans built two hundred fifty thousand miles of roads. Yeah. And All the way except for the ones in Boston. They were, <laughs> they were set up for cows. That's they were, right. They, they, they <laughs> there you go. That's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. But, but uh, so much of our history has just been influenced by that. Even mm-hmm. the uh, size of the rockets that have been shipped into uh, Kennedy Space Center here uh, came on trains. Uh, they've designed them to fit on trains mm-hmm. because they had to ship them from place to place. Well, those train tracks were developed for horses and carriages, and uh, all of our roadways, our northeastern towns, are eight miles apart because that's a comfortable trotting distance for a horse for an hour. Mm-hmm. And then you stop and rest him, give him a drink of water, and you can turn around and go back home. Um, even in, in Kentucky, the um, I think the county seats are set up so that they – will be one day's ride for somebody. Uh, oh, so really? so much of our history mm-hmm. has evolved around the horse, whether it's been under saddle or with the wheel. But the wheel has given man a real mechanical advantage as well. So uh, now a horse that could uh, um, carry 200 pounds now can pull 2,000 pounds when the wheels, when hitched to a carriage. That's true. Yeah, so. Yeah. How does one learn? I mean, when you when you see your collection and when you read the plaques and and realize and, and when you see your books and everything that you have done, your PowerPoint presentations, mm-hmm. um, how does one learn all of that? Is it through reading? Is it through just you know? How did you acquire all that knowledge? Well, the interesting thing I think. Well, obviously I do read because yeah, the you have quite a library here. Yeah. yeah, I I'm I'm 
a, a little bit. And it isn't just about horses and driving either. I see farmer, you know, books on farming oh, and agriculture yeah. and, you know, Roads a little and bit. bridges. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. All of this is tied in engineering and all of these, these sort of things are just so tied to the horse and carriage. It's incredible. What was the question now? What was my question? How did she, um, how did you like amass all this knowledge? Oh, oh, well, the unique thing, the advantage I have had, I think, over most people is I, I've been able to collect the carriages, but mm-hmm. I've also been able to drive the horses to those carriages. So I know almost every one of those carriages in the museum have been designed to be ro- or restored to be roadworthy mm-hmm. so that I could actually put horses to them so that I know what it is to drive three horses abreast or to drive three horses in the wheel and two in the lead or vice versa, Mm -hmm. or to drive what we put together, the Gloria turnout, which was one horse in the wheel to a single carriage, two horses in the swing position, and then in the lead position, a single horse again. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's been the fun part for me. And that's why I've been able to bring an additional depth to the knowledge that history and reading books brings to you is I've been able to actually go out there and drive those horses. So so that leads to the question that uh, for us carriage people, is there are there a couple carriages in the museum that you wouldn't want anybody to drive because they were just horrendous? Oh, because they were bad to yeah, drive? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's... It, no, I don't wish anybody not to drive a carriage because okay. <laughs> it's great fun. <laughs> it's great fun. Uh, there but are, there are cars. I mean, I've owned are, cars in the past that were real some dogs. More diff- yeah. Some more difficult than yeah. the other. Well, I have to tell you about Holly Thompson, who drove the golden carriage or the arm booster dress chariot that's down there. It's the only one in the United States that was owned by aristocratic families. And it's actually a chariot. Yeah, well, yeah. it's not a chariot by your definition. Your definition. Right. They called them chariots because the people sat facing forward in them, just like you would stand in a chariot of... of of 2000 BCE and uh, uh, face forward. But it actually is an enclosed carriage that's gilded. It's got gold leaf and gold plate on it and everything else. That would be the most nerve-wracking to drive. Uh, So if you want to talk about difficulty, Holly Thompson, when he drove it, he said he was more nervous driving that carriage for exhibition with the Carriage Association Mm -hmm. than he was nervous about driving Queen Elizabeth's carriages in some of her processions, oh, really? because he was young at the time. He was like mm-hmm. 18, 20 Didn't know better. <laughs> he didn't know any better. <laughs> right. And he knew the value of the guild on this carriage, mm-hmm. so he was nervous. He was just afraid to wreck it, in other yeah, words. He yeah, was, he was very, very nervous. <laughs> now, you have a great that. story that goes along with that carriage. You have to tell us that, how you found that carriage. Oh, oh how I found it. That's yes. my favorite story. Yes. And it's interesting, even though David works for me, David Saunders works for me full time, but over the years, it seems that David's been been there during some pivotal times. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a coach being restored on the west coast of the United States in Oregon. And it wasn't being finished. So I said, well, I'm going to have to go out and see this guy. And I'm going to have to say, look, and I want the coach because I need to drive it, blah, blah, blah. And when I was out there, he went to get me some tea. I'd looked at the coach that I'd already purchased that he was restoring. And it was about finished. And he went to get some tea in the house, and uh, while we were waiting for him, and I think David Saunders was with me at this point, and we were wandering through his storage barns, and I came, like, the third carriage in on the right, I can kind of remember this, I looked at it and I said, 
David, David, come over here. Look at this carriage. This is a full state carriage. Oh, no, that can't be. Can't be. This guy buys movie props. Can't right. be. I said, David, look at this. Look at the carving on the front and the the carvings on the backside. And I said, look at the hub. The hub's And I assume correctly. it wasn't in very good shape. No, it was in really bad shape. Yeah. And I said, but it's a full state carriage. Uh, no, no, it isn't. So I went inside and we started to pull away the upholstery, they'd had some rather shabby upholstery mm-hmm. over the original upholstery. And I pulled it away, and here's the most gorgeous. They make they made the upholstery of silk, wool, and cotton, uh, all natural fibers. And here's this most gorgeous, very worn and soiled mm-hmm. upholstery on the inside of it. So putting all of the little pieces together, we knew it was a full-state carriage, and it had been brought here to America by the movie industry because during the world wars or bet- even between the world wars the movie industry in California was burgeoning it was it, it, there was Prisoner of Zenda and I'm trying to think of the other movie that it was in Juarez so this carriage was purchased um, it, it's an 1850s vintage carriage but it was purchased to be in the this movie by MGM Studios with Ronald Coleman and <laughs> West so that's why it ended up on the west coast of the United States so I b- eventually bought it I offered the man some money for it but here's the problem now you've got to get it restored because it was in deplorable condition and he had just taken forever to restore your previous <laughs> yes, one so we didn't want to go that route <laughs> we didn't so you had to, to buy it and take it out of his barn that's right yeah, <laughs> oh and exactly. we're not going to have you exactly. do the work exactly. <laughs> and coincidentally my good friend hank vanderwheel who's mm-hmm. a harness maker out in, in belgium mm-hmm. was restoring a harness for the for a museum that was an Austrian full-state harness. And this was an Austrian uh, full-state full carriage. carriage. For weddings, From the royal family from, from there. From the royal families, from Emperor Franz Joseph and Empress Assisi. They'd ridden in this carriage. It was their carriage, you know. In fact, rumor has it that the two newer ones that are in the museum in Vienna were modeled after this carriage. And this carriage now is in better condition than the ones there because it's a newer restoration. Oh, yeah. So it had to go from the state of Washington by truck and trailer to Pennsylvania to be loaded on a sea land container to go to Rotterdam to then go by truck and trailer to Belgium near Mechelen, Belgium, for restoration. Then it had to be crated and put into a archival museum crate and flown back to Florida. But what happened... They flew that thing back? They, it was flown back in an airplane, landed... It's well, huge. It's big. I mean, it's, it's big, <laughs> yes. This is in an archival box. <laughs> it's not like sending, sending a yeah. Picasso around yeah, the country, yeah. around the world. So, uh, and I was told it was to arrive here on a certain date. Well, it didn't arrive. So I called the shipping company. Well, we have records of it coming into Miami or coming into some place. And I said, oh, where is it now? We don't know. They lost your state carriage? So yeah. You just spent all that money <laughs> fixing exactly, up? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I've got tons of in money. In Miami of all places. Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. So, but I later learned it had been in some place like Missouri. And apparently there was some secret army equipment that was being transported with my carriage oh, no. 
and it had been diverted to the army base because I guess the U.S. federal government has precedence that over Gloria Austin. Over, uh, over <laughs> your right, carriage. Over my carriage. And so uh, three days later, uh, beyond its due date, it finally arrived here, and it was in good condition and all was well. But uh, that's a long story for well, a then, carriage. Now that, but it's that, probably more traveled, that carriage, than any other carriage in history, I would guess. And how long did it take you to hook it up and drive it? Uh, not too long. I think it was delivered. We had planned for it to be exhibited in uh, the year 2000, I think it was, mm-hmm. with the CAA conference here for Holly to drive it. Oh, yeah. And so uh, we had it here only for about a month or so, and then it was driven to... In fact, I actually bought Kleidruber horses mm-hmm. because I wanted... To, they were the official coach horse from the Austrian Empire. So at the time, I had Kleidruber horses, and we actually put the proper color and type of horse mm-hmm. to the golden carriage so yeah and i'll post a picture of that in our show notes yeah. too because i have pic- we have okay. lots of pictures of that yeah. so yeah after all that time that must have been so great to finally get up and drive that carriage. oh yeah it was i actually have never driven it i oh, really I put holly in the outfit because it's a coachman driven vehicle oh that's yeah. true not yeah. quite appropriate right. for a lady to drive so but uh anyway, oh you can make an exception yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but actually i had holly drive it and i rode inside of it because that's where the lady should oh, be oh that's even yeah, better that's right. yeah that's even better it. riding inside <laughs> it was a rainy cold day and i can remember i didn't i looked a little shabby with my raincoat on my rain hat and but it it worked okay, so we had fun anyway. So, <laughs> so when you look back now at uh, at everything you've accomplished, okay, you a very successful businesswoman. Well, okay. yes. <laughs> well, a, I, I, you know, yeah. very successful businesswoman, and then getting into horses and carriages and driving and everything that you've done. And I think I already know the answer to this. Um, you know, we we sometimes pick out the parts of our lives that we go, okay, there uh, that was. That was amazing. Then there's parts of your lives that that was kind of, you know, it was it was there, you know. Mm-hmm. We all have those stages in yeah. our life. Yeah. What's the stage that you look back on and you go, okay, that was that was one of the most amazing periods of my life? Oh. The, oh, I don't know. Oh, that's <laughs> a good question. Now, you see, you've, you've caused me to be speechless. Um <laughs> I I can remember one moment in my life, and it probably doesn't have so much to do with horses. It's when I turned 33. For some reason, that age kind of, you become wiser at age 33. (laughs) And I, I came into my own, I think, in realizing that I was no longer a child or I was no longer learning things that I could actually offer the world something. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's a makes sense. age 33 was kind of a pivotal point when I said, you know, I can give back for all of this child the 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 my parents contribution to me and my contribution to my children and that maybe I could make a mark on the world and I that was at age 33. Probably I guess some of the times when I was at even back at the Royal Winter Fair, because the Royal Winter Fair had been a pivotal event. And you got to, to drive there? And I drove with the there. With the old oh, men? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Many times. Yeah. So uh, I think that's, that's probably it, because 
and and I think also just being a woman, I hate to keep going back to this, but uh, but it is unusual in the world that you yeah you yeah, you play in it, yeah. yes, and particularly when it comes to driving four horses, and particularly when it comes to coaching, oh, coaching yeah. and uh, and um, to achieve the the status and the respect of others worldwide. So, like driving in Hungary, driving in Germany, driving in these countries that you you. As as a college student, I can remember this. I had never. I'd been raised on a dairy farm. Essentially, I had a very rural childhood, and I went to college. And as Wendy knows, you meet all of these uh, young women that have been to Europe, and they've been here, and they've been there. And I go, Oh my goodness, I'm just a little girl from this podunk town. And then later in life, when I was driving, I, I probably in Hungary was a pivotal point. I said. I'm in Hungary driving a foreign hand. <laughs> I said, do you realize what that means? And the Hungarians have been noted for a long time mm-hmm. for their horses and and particularly that area. And you go on to the steppe and Kazakhstan and some of those other places. But to be driving horses in these foreign countries in that I can come to you today and talk about Costa Rica and South America and uh, driving in... I don't know. I don't know how many, maybe thirty foreign countries, and driving. I think I counted up sixteen different breeds or types of foreign hand that I've driven over over the years. Everything from criollos to hackneys right, in, right. in South America to Dutch horses and mm-hmm. German horses in in Europe and uh, Spanish horses in, uh, um, you know, in Frisians a lot in in free in uh, the Netherlands and uh, which ones were your favorite? What which ones your favorite breed to drive? So that far? is awfully difficult. Now David is a professional. Her current ones because yeah, yeah, they're terrific. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's what I do take pride in is that if if we can train horses so you can do what you did today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and them not pulling on you, yeah, or, they were beautiful or to drive. and they're responding to your voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and those are Spanish PREs. They're Spanish PREs, yeah, yeah. And they're they're a unique breed of horse. Um, I tell everybody I bought new horses, and I bought them in gray because I <laughs> wanted everybody to know I had had new horses, you know. But um, the Spanish horse. And and it's interesting also to look at the history with the Spanish horse because they've had such a long history. In fact, um, the Andalusian or those horses from that valley uh, of Andalusia, uh, the Clydruber horse that the Emperor Franz Joseph used, that bloodline is in the Clydruber. Oh, I didn't know that. It's also in the Lipizzan horses. Mm-hmm. So those horses that you think of as being traditional breeds the monarchies knew to go to Spain if they wanted mm-hmm. quality horses. So, uh, and they've been training and dealing with these this beautiful breed forever and ever. So there's something about them that makes them uh, um, easy to train. Uh, David even says, you know, you show them once or twice and they get it. Mm-hmm. And he's had more experience with CDE horses that are probably a little bit more difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get greater performance level. Maybe I don't know whether you do, but uh, he'll say some of them, you can show them 10 and 12 times and they don't get it. Right. And uh, there's people like that too. <laughs> yes. I know that. There you go. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> But these horses seem to, mm-hmm. uh, once or twice you've shown them a water hazard or you've shown them a, 
a scary garbage bag along the road, and and right. the next time or two they've got it, they know not to be afraid of it. So, so now we're running out of time. What do you want to leave everybody with? I guess one of the the biggest revelations to me is maybe not even well. One is, I guess, what I've stated before: the impact of the horse and the wheel on history is just astronomical. But also, dealing with horses helps everybody to deal with people in life because there's a many, many parallels between working with horses and getting them to do, and particularly for women, I'm going to say, Wendy, mm-hmm. because we're not strong and powerful. Mm-hmm. And half of our human race is bigger and stronger than we are. Yeah. So how do you and I get what we want out of life dealing with people that are physically stronger than we are. Well, the same thing is true with the horse. The horse is bigger and stronger than we are. Mm -hmm. And how do we get what we want from the horse? And there are two elements, communication and trust. Mm -hmm. So we have to learn how to communicate with them, and we have to begin to trust in one another. The horse trusts in the human being, and the human being trusts in the horse. And once you can achieve that, that it, it's it's tear jerking if you go out with a four in hand and have a good go and you have been able to manipulate the horses through in your case probably a hazard mm-hmm. in my case if we go between these big rock pillars yeah, yeah. and beside a big manor house and uh, stop for dinner and we've done it successfully yeah. uh, that's probably the most significant thing is to be able to work with a 1,200 to 1,500-pound animal, now not just one but four of them, <laughs> yeah. and get them down the road and do what you want and keep safe passengers safe on board too. So, And the parallels between the trust that other people put in you too to do things. Thank you, Gloria. Mm-hmm. Good. Good.